Today's scripture reading is found from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We continue on with our series in First Peter this morning, and uh, if you recall a couple weeks ago, we made a transition from really the first chapter and a half almost, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, in which Peter's been laying out just this glorious vision of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, what he has called us into, saving relationship with him, what it means to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to be set apart, to be his own to be God's own possession. That's, that's where Peter has been in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And then he's going to pivot in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, with some kind of summary pivot statements and then kind of launch into what we looked at last week, what it looks like to live as Christians under governing authorities that are antagonistic to Christianity. And then now we move into the household. Um, these Christians were free. So Peter says in chapter 2, verse 16, and yet they were aliens and exiles and sojourners. They were minorities living in a majority culture that was increasingly antagonistic to the very things that they believed. They were experiencing persecution, primarily verbal, slander, things like that. You get that through all of 1 Peter. But of course, you know, if you know your history, by the time you get to what John says in Revelation, that persecution has really been amped up under successive emperors in the Roman Empire. And so, if in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, Peter's going to talk about, you know, generally speaking, how to live within this culture that's antagonistic to Christianity, and if in chapter 13 through 17 that we looked at last week, how do we live in a society where the government is opposed to us, again, now he's moving into the household. Now, the household in Greco-Roman society was considered the fundamental unit of that society. Greek writers had for a long time said that the structures within the household were ordained by the gods, and maintaining that structure was essential for the well-being of society. And so, what was happening in the homes was very much the business of all of society at large. They, people were being watched. And so whenever a new religion would kind of make its way in 
you know, people's eyes were opened a little bit wider, people's ears were perked up a little bit more because they wanted to see how this religion might undermine the foundation of society. Of course, what was happening? Slaves were becoming Christians. Again, these are household slaves that Peter's primarily talking about, servants within, within a household. They were becoming believers. You had wives who were becoming Christians who were married to non-Christian husbands. You had husbands who were becoming Christians that were married to non-Christian wives. What would it look like, Peter's transitioning into, to live distinctly Christian lives within that societal structure? How do you do it? It's, it's amazing what Peter's doing here. Because on the one hand, he's saying, listen, let's not draw undue necessary condemnation upon ourselves, but let's also live faithfully in the roles that God has called us to. And so he's, you know, just nimbly striking a balance here in order to help in this instance, what we're talking about in this passage, those household slaves who are becoming believers to continue to function as believers within the role in society they found themselves in. In other words, there are a couple of questions that Peter's seeking to ask and answer. How do we live distinctly Christian lives within the household structures of the day? That's, that's a question that he anticipated people asking and that he's seeking to answer. And even more particularly in this passage, how do you live a distinctly Christian life in a societal structure in which you are suffering precisely because of what you believe. Now, how does that apply to us today? Juan Sanchez, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says this, We have no theological category for righteous suffering and no idea how to endure it. We don't understand that righteousness can and does lead to suffering. The more of the former one has, the more of the latter one should expect to face. And I think, I mean, it's a bold statement, but I think it's a generally true statement. We think about suffering in all kinds of different ways. We don't, because of our experience, tend to run to suffering that is righteous suffering. It's suffering on account of injustice because of what we believe and how we're seeking to live it out. So what we've been trying to do through our study of 1 Peter so far and what we'll continue by God's grace to try to do is answer essentially those same kinds of questions that Peter's asking. How is it that we live distinctly Christian lives in a culture that's antagonistic to Christianity? And how is it that we do so in settings where we don't have power? Slaves, Household slaves in Greco-Roman culture had no power. They had no agency. They were stuck. We find ourselves in situations where we have little agency, little power, and feel stuck. What do we do? I mean, what we're trying to do as we study First Peter is answer those questions. Who are we and how are we called to live in our cultural moment, which is shifting and changing very rapidly from what many of us have experienced throughout our lives to what a lot of the younger folks that are with us are experiencing at present and all of us to some degree may experience in the future. And again, I'm not talking about wholesale physical persecution. I'm just talking about the kind of verbal maligning and ostracization that happens now because of what we believe. And so there's three things I think we're going to learn from this. As we don't at this point jump into the household, right, if we're talking about in this passage 
household slaves in the context of their relationship with their master, the question that we need to answer this morning is how does this apply in the context of the workplace and how does it apply in the context of the campus and college? These are the two arenas, I think, especially where the teaching that we have here apply, but also we can extend it out to all kinds of uh, relationships in society, and I'll, I'll demonstrate that when we get to it. So three things we're going to look at this morning. First, the context. Second, the call. And then third, the example of Christ. How is Peter telling us we can answer that question? How do we live distinctly Christian lives in a in a culture that's antagonistic to Christianity, especially when we're in structures of society where we're facing some form of oppression because of what we believe, what do we do? Peter's going to point to the context, the call, and then the example of Christ. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you'd help us to make application to our lives. For some of us, I know this feels especially pressing. And for some of us, it feels extremely remote. And so I pray that for all of us, you would help the truths that are here sink deep into our hearts, that you would help us to see that we all have opportunities to apply what is said here, whether it's directly into our lives because of the situations we find ourselves in, or whether it is because we have opportunities to come alongside and encourage those who do. Or so help us to be faithful. But Lord, to that end, give us ears to hear. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the context. The context in Peter's day, again, had to do with households in which slaves were present and, and lived under the authority in, you know, enslaved to uh, the masters of the house. Um, slaves in Greco-Roman society were the most vulnerable. Besides the weak and the little children, um, among adults, the slaves were really the most vulnerable. Harsh treatment of slaves was accepted in that day and age. Aristotle, of all people, felt that slaves were inferior, they were unable to govern themselves, and so they were therefore better off under a master in the same way that cattle are better off on a farm than they would be in the wild. He believed it was impossible to mistreat a slave because you can't mistreat property, and they're simply property. You can make the comparison between uh, slavery in that day and age and the African slave trade, which is even more abhorrent. Um, in the African slave trade, slaves were kidnapped. They were ripped from their families. They were bought. They were sold. They had virtually no hope of ever gaining their freedom. Slaves in the Roman Empire were sometimes people who sold themselves into slavery because they had a debt to repay. And they knew that once that debt had been repaid, they would be released from that servant relationship that they had with their master. Now, again, they were treated poorly. That was the norm, but there was the possibility for escape. Now, bottom line here, Peter is not condoning slavery in any way. He's simply dealing with the reality that these people found themselves in. Christians, generally speaking, had little power in society at large, and slaves had no power within the household, except to the extent that they were able to purchase their, their freedom and get out. So how should Christian slaves conduct themselves? That was the question that Peter was seeking to answer. So context for us, again, applies most directly to the workplace and on the campus. 
So imagine yourself as a believer in the workplace. And some of you are experiencing this kind of thing right now. You are routinely mocked for your faith. You are the butt of jokes. You are passed over for promotions. You, your work is hyper-criticized and undervalued. And you know, you know it's because of what you believe. It's not for lack of quality of work. It's not for lack of effort. It's simply because of who you are and what you believe. And you know that that's the case. How do you respond? What do you do? Or you're a student, grad student, undergrad, you're on a campus, a secular campus, and you are routinely called out in class because the professor knows what you believe. And so you are held up as example A of everything that is still wrong with society. You are held up as the example of someone who is not yet enlightened. You do your best work on papers and they come back with a C at best. That happened to me in a, I mean, it was a long time ago, right? Philosophy class, now I'm no philosopher. But I wrote this paper that I thought was brilliant. It wasn't. But it deserved probably better than a C that I got, or the C that at least I got deserved some kind of explanation. Of course, the paper was on the topic of abortion. I was glad I got a C. You can go online and read story after story. You can talk to people that are with you right now who are students, U of R, RIT, who are experiencing that and worse on the campuses that they are on right now. How do you respond? What do you do? And this does extend out to all of us. It really does. Because you look at verse 18, for instance, in chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow. So he, you know, goes out a little bit there from slaves to masters to, more generally, one. Now, you could say, well, he just means one of the slaves or one of the masters, but flip over, or, or one of the servants. But flip over to chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, now Peter's just talking about all of us as believers. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Again, it kind of sounds like what Peter said about, listen, if you're, if you're doing wrong and you're punished for it, why should you expect any different? But however, you're living a righteous life and you're being punished, endure through much suffering. Well, Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So this does extend out to all of us. And of course, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're called to take up our cross and follow him and serve. So in a sense, we are in Christ servants of all. So yeah, this applies in the relational structures and, you know, environments we find ourselves in? Do you have a neighbor who knows what you believe and mocks you to your face or to the neighbors around you? Do you have a neighbor whose grass clippings always tend to end up in your yard or whose doggies doo-doo always tends to end up in your yard, right? Do you have uh, other parents that are 
on this, have kids on the same team as your kid's sports team, and they will deliberately avoid you and talk to others in the circle because they know that you are one of those Christians. This does extend out. How about your school teachers? You go to the parent, you know, parent-teacher conference, and the teachers are looking at you, and you can tell by the way they're talking to you that they're thinking, you are so messing up your kids with that Christian faith. How do you respond? What do you do? If you were to say to Peter, Peter, why is this happening to us? How would Peter answer you? And the answer is in verse 21. Take a look. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called. So, second, let's look at our calling. Our calling. What are we called to do? We see it generally in verse 19. Peter writes there, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So when he says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, what is the this to which he is referring? It goes back to what he says in verse 19. Enduring sorrows, mindful of God, while suffering unjustly. That's what he's saying. This is what it looks like to be a Christian in that kind of a relationship, in those kind of societal structures when you're being maligned because of your faith, endure sorrows, mindful of God, while suffering unjustly. So mindful of God can mean a number of different things. It can be mindful of the fact that this is what you've been called to. It can be mindful of the fact, as we'll see at the end of this passage, that Jesus is your shepherd who is with you and guiding you. It can be mindful of the fact that, as Peter has said in other parts of the letter, through that very suffering, God is working in you. But to be mindful of all these things, enduring sorrows. I love, you know, endure is so present throughout this passage. But right there in verse 19, I love how he adds that word, sorrows. He doesn't say endure harsh speech. He doesn't say endure that bad grade that you shouldn't have gotten or that bad review that wasn't justified. He says endure the very things that come with that, the very things that you wrestle with in your interior being as a result of living in that kind of society and experiencing that kind of hardship. Endure sorrows, mindful of God, while suffering un unjustly. That's, generally speaking, what we're called to. But he does get more particular. And we're going to look at that. He gets particular throughout the rest of the passage. He gets a little bit more precise and uh, unpacks what that means. But first, a caveat here that I think is important. Um, we have freedoms and we have protections that slaves in the Greco-Roman society did not have. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse uh, 21, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul there says to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, do it. So again, he wouldn't say, you know, stay in that unjust situation because that's an, that's a, there's an injustice there in which you can glorify God. No. If you can get out, get out, Paul says. But Peter, knowing that his readers were stuck to a large degree, says this is how you should live in that environment. And so then make application to yourself. We have protections. We have laws, especially when it comes to abuse, that we can invoke injustice that can be pursued 
and we ought to do so. If you are in a situation, whether it's in the workplace or in the campus, we're going to talk about families next week, but if you're in a vocation, if you're in school, if you're experiencing things that are illegal, pursue justice by all means. If, however, it's not a matter of legality, but just a matter of someone making your life miserable, here's what it looks like to endure suffering mindful of God. Three things that Peter tells us. First, in verse 19, maintain a posture of submission. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. That word, be subject to, it's more precisely translated, submit yourself to. So there's this sense of the reflexive nature. This is something that I am doing to myself. I am submitting myself. I am putting myself deliberately under the authority of this person. Now, of course, slaves in Greco-Roman society, they didn't have any choice. But Peter's not even getting at whether they could choose, you know, physically to do that. He was saying this is an interior disposition that you need to have, an interior determination to submit yourself to and respect, in our instance, the boss, the professor, the institution, that isn't treating you illegally, but is treating you unjustly. Submit yourselves. Second, do good work. Verse 20, second half of verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So all of verse 20. If when you do good, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, behind that is Peter just saying, continue to do good work. Be a good student. Be the best student. Be the best employee. Let there be no indication that fault could be found for lack of effort, for lack of intentionality in terms of the way in which you relate to those, your coworkers and those who are in authority over you. Do good work. You see the same idea in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Paul writes this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to, men, to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Do good work. Be the best employee, be the best student you possibly can be. Maintain a posture of submission. And then he goes on to say, watch your speech. Do not revile. Now, we're going to talk about the example of Christ that's evident here in verses 22 and 23, but just look at it in terms of your own conduct. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he's reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting to him, himself to him who judges Justly, when someone is speaking ill of you, it is so tempting to want to give it right back to them, right? You've got the words, you've got the phrases, you are ready to go. Peter's saying, don't. They're maligning you, they're saying things about you that aren't true. You're so tempted to strike back with 
deceit. Peter's saying don't. In fact, I think Peter would agree with Paul in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 29, where Paul writes this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I think it's James who talks about let your speech be seasoned with salt. These things apply in all of our relationships. And so don't revile, don't speak back against, don't speak ill of behind the back of the boss. Instead, determine to bless with your speech. <clears throat> Why don't we respond that way? And generally speaking, well, we're sinful. Yeah, but, but why? At one level, we want to be treated fairly, and that's okay. The question is, as Christians, should we expect to be treated fairly? And the answer is no. And that's, that's what Peter's telling us in verse 21. To this you have been called. We should not expect to be treated fairly. Do you, do you, do you, re, do you believe that? Do you go into your workplace? Do you go on a campus, a secular campus? Do you walk into the classroom with the, with the professor that you know is agnostic, atheist, or whatever, and do you go in there saying, you know what, I expect to be treated fairly here. I expect to see justice done. Surely the quality of my work and demeanor will result in fairness and equity. No. No. And so we expect to be treated fairly, and then we're surprised when we're not. Second, we are so tempted to want to defend ourselves. We're so tempted to want to defend our reputation. How could I possibly accept a poor review? My reputation would be tarnished. How could I possibly stand for a low grade? Or to have my character maligned in front of these other students. Whose hands is your reputation in? Your own? <laughs> the God of the universe looks upon you and smiles. If his opinion of you is the same as his opinion of his son Jesus Christ, why are you concerned about your reputation in the eyes of man? That's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. I mean, I stand up here in front of people every Sunday and worry about my reputation. So, you know, true confession. But we all struggle with this, don't we? Here's where I think it gets even more difficult. We find ourselves tempted to think that we need to defend God. As if God needs us to stand in for him. Now, it's tough because it is right to want to be ready to give a, to give a defense and to, and, to, and to give reasons why you know, people should put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's entirely plausible. In fact, it's the most plausible faith to have in light of everything else, which requires faith as well. Whether you consider yourself religious, religious or not, the foundation of your belief is just that, belief. The only question is whose belief is most plausible. I think there's nothing wrong with wanting to be able to explain why Christianity is the most plausible belief of all beliefs out there. However, if in your equipping to do that, in your you know, explanation of it, you find yourself in your heart thinking, man, I need to defend God here. I mean, God's got it. He really does. He doesn't need us. 
So, so there we are. I mean, there's, there's the sin in the way that it expresses itself in, in individual circumstances. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that interior issue? Talked about this last week. The, the first line of battle for a Christian is always in the heart. So how do we deal with that when it comes to people that are persecuting us? And that's our third point. Look to the example of Christ. Follow the example of Christ. Take a look with me at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And it is so easy to kind of generalize that idea. Because when we talk about somebody being our example, we tend to think in a broad brush kind of a way. Or when we think about following in someone's footsteps, we think just kind of in a broad sense. But Peter deliberately uses words here that are very precise. The word for example that he uses here is the Greek word hypogrammon. And what it literally is, is the, it was like the alphabet letters that were patterns that children would trace over in order to learn how to write. So Peter is saying, that, in fact, Karen Jobes says it amazingly. Let me find this quote. I've got it here. Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter. Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model. It is as if it were one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. So Jesus is an example. In the same way that children trace over the letters, I'm making English letters here, I should be doing Greek, but you get the idea. You know, in the same way that they would trace over the letters in order to learn how to write, Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, Peter's saying trace over the life of Jesus in order to learn how to live. And then he says uh, to follow in his steps in verse 21 as well. And the word for steps there is literally the word footprints. <laughs> you know, I read that. I couldn't help but think of that, that old, you know, kind of chintzy, sorry if you like it, but that, you know, footsteps in the sand, you know, the two footsteps, and then Jesus, why is it that there's only one? That's when I was, uh, you know, carrying you. And the picture here in First Peter is more of not, you know, a beautiful kind of, you know, rolling in the waves and it's peaceful. It's like California, right? And you're walking along the beach. No, it's like the storms are blowing in. It's not sand. It's quicksand. You feel like you're sinking. There's these steps in front of you and you need to step in every step if you're going to make it through. That's the picture that Peter gives us here. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Trace the life of Jesus, that your life might follow that pattern. What does that mean? It boils down to this, and you see it in verses 21 to 23. Let me, let's look at it together. Let's just pick up in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now here it is. But committed himself to God I just lost it. There we go. Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What does it mean to follow the example of Christ, generally speaking? Commit yourself to God who judges justly. How do you endure sorrows 
when suffering injustice, mindful of God, commit yourself to God who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. Entrust yourself entirely to God. And so, because he was doing that, again, it isn't a once and for all thing in the life of Jesus. It's not a once and for all thing in our lives. This is something we have to continue to do. It's because Jesus was doing that that he didn't sin in his speech. It's because Jesus was doing that that he didn't revile when reviled in return. Don't think that because Jesus was the Son of God that he didn't face real temptation. Of course he did. Now, he didn't sin, but he was tempted in every way as we are. He had to employ the same truth that we had to have to employ. Jesus had to entrust himself entirely to his heavenly Father, and so do we. What does that look like practically? Well, what does it look like practically for Jesus? If he's our example, Jesus dove deep into prayer, right? I mean, he got away and spent time. He got, you know, fellowship with the Father. That was a priority in his life. If you would commit yourself entirely to God and endure suffering, you need, you need to dive deep into prayer. Second, you need to drink deep from God's Word. That's what Jesus did. How was it that Jesus was able to, when he was tempted in the wilderness, answer Satan's accusations and temptations with the Word of God? He had hidden the Word of God in his heart. And so too must you. Dive deep into prayer. Drink deeply of God's Word and then sink deeply into community. Jesus did. He brought his disciples along with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, they were a lousy community. They fell asleep. But Jesus saw the value of community. Do you? I think that's especially true if you're dealing with these kind of situations in the workplace or in school. You need the broader community. You need to be with people that are older than you, that are younger than you, that aren't experiencing things exactly the same way you are. But you also very much need to have a band of people that you're hanging with that know exactly what you're going through. And they're in the midst of it as well. Dive deep into prayer, drink deep into God's Word, sink deep into community. Why all this emphasis on deep? Because the winds are blowing, guys, and the roots of your life need to sink deep. Follow the example of Christ, but ultimately, if Jesus is only our example, we won't make it. And so we wrap up by saying, remember the suffering of Christ. That's where Peter goes, verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Remember the sour sorrows that Jesus endured and remember the salvation that he secured for you. Remember the sorrows that Jesus endured. All these references that Peter, you know, hints at or gets at explicitly are all from Isaiah chapter 53 that talk about the suffering servant, that point to Jesus Christ, that point to his suffering on the cross. It's, I think, so cool that we landed in this passage on the first Sunday in Lent because here we are on this journey to the cross 
in which we have an opportunity throughout the course of the week to reflect on, to remember the reality of Christ's suffering, even as we come together on Sunday morning and, and do have an anticipation of the resurrection that we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Remember the sorrows that he endured. Remember the salvation that he secured for you. Jesus is the good shepherd. The good shepherd became the lamb in order to save you. That's a beautiful picture we have in Revelation chapter 5. The shepherd became the lamb in order to save his sheep. Because Jesus is your shepherd, you can endure suffering. He is more to you than just an example. He guides you through the valley of the shadow of reputational and professional and academic death. He guides you there. He's with you there. He died for you so that you can endure there. To that, you have been called to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter said it's a gracious thing to do which is simply a way of saying that is the kind of life that God looks on and is pleased to bless. Jesus is the ultimate example of one who endured unjust suffering. God's delight in him is now God's delight for you because you are in him. So in whatever context you find yourself suffering unjustly, remember your call is to endure and to remember the gospel by which you've been saved. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us as we leave here this morning is that we will go with a great sense of confidence in what you are able to do through us. That as we live tomorrow on the campus or in the workplace where we feel that uh, the, the wind of culture is very much in our face and not at our backs, that because of your grace, our roots are deep and will continue to run deep, and that you, Lord Jesus, are a shepherd who is ever leading us and has secured safe passage because you have passed through death and been raised and now reign. So Jesus, help us to continue to look to you, ever mindful of the gospel by which we've been saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.